0: I need to be clear about something to all of you this morning. My intention, as Brother Charles said, is to preach to you this morning about this is the third message about when Christians sin. But I feel like it's important this morning that I say something to this group collectively. You've got your Bibles open very likely right now to Romans chapter 6. In the very first verse, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? That grace may abound. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? I am going to talk today about the reality that true Christians do at times still stumble into sin. And we're going to deal with an aspect of that. But there are some of you sitting here today that the reason you stumble in sin and even do more than that, you live your life in an unbroken pattern of sin, is because not you're a Christian... Not that God has reached down and, and done anything in your life at all in the supernatural realm. It is because you are still dead in your trespasses and sins, and you still are walking according to the course of this world. That's the reality. Listen, if you're here today, it doesn't matter if you simply say you're a Christian. God's Word says you will not continue in sin if you are a true Christian. You won't continue in it. You may stumble in it at times, but you cannot continue in it. Those of us that are, that all of us at one time in this room were lost. Either we were lost or we are lost. And so we can identify. There was a time in our life when our life was lived simply for this. Self-seeking. We were selfish. We lived our life for ourselves. Now listen, if you have not been born again, you're still like that. And you don't have to go very far to examine it. Are the decisions and the choices and everything you do in your life all wrapped around you? That's all you have to ask yourself. Are you consumed with you? And that doesn't mean do you help out your mother or do you help out your wife or do you help out your girlfriend. The lost do that. I mean, tax gatherers and prostitutes, they do that. I'm talking about, has there been such a radical change in your life that old things are passed away and all things have become new? Because that's the description of the Christian. So even as I'm diving into this message today, I don't want some of you sitting there and thinking, well, yeah, that's me, I'm a Christian, and he's talking about why I sin. There's very likely some of you sitting here that the reason you sin is because you are a sinner and because you have never been saved. There is a great difference between sin in the life of a Christian and sin in the life of a non-Christian. The non-Christian listen folks, the non-Christian can be described this way. They are fornicators. Are you having sex on a regular basis outside of marriage? You are a fornicator. Fornicators and adulterers don't inherit the kingdom of heaven. Period. You can call yourself a Christian tell the sun don't shine folks. But you are not headed to heaven. And Scripture right there says don't deceive yourselves. Why? Because so many people deceive themselves. Listen, if you are a thief, thieves do not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Period. If you are a homosexual, homosexuals do not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Listen, folks. This is the reality of Scripture. If you are a liar, if on a regular basis you can lie, They have their part in the lake of fire. If you are living your life as a drunkard or as a drug addict, you are not going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. So don't you dare place yourself in the camp with the rest of the Christians in this room as I go through this message. But listen, if you're in that camp, I want you to know something. So were we. But we're not anymore. And that's... Listen... If there was no hope for you, I'd tell you to pack your bags and go out right now. But there is hope. There's, there's hope for us Christians who still do some sin. And there's hope for you if you're not a Christian. And all you do is wallow in sin. So just please, give me your ear. And we're going to dive into this. Father, please. We have heard about Your work in India. The Spirit of God has fallen over there. At least in some meetings, at the preaching of three indigenous men. Father, would you give us the same here? Amen. Okay, when Christians sin? That's been our topic over the last several weeks. And as I said before, folks, this is not some theoretical exercise in futility. This is immensely practical study. And I I think you Christians know this. More than just knowing it, you feel it. You know that talking about when Christian sin impacts us right where we live. And the reason it does is because we Christians have been known to sin once in a while? Right? Haven't we? We're born again. We're new creatures. We're not what we used to be. Such were some of you. Some of you were fornicators. Some of you were adulterers. Some of you were effeminate. Some of you were homosexuals. Some of you were thieves. Some of you were liars. But folks, by the grace of God, that's not what characterizes your life now. But, God doesn't bring us into this realm of perfection immediately. So, what have we learned so far in this study? I'm going to just click through this as a reminder. One, when Christians sin, they need to respond right to that sin. And the way to respond right is to think right and to believe right. We've laid that down. Number two, not sinning is always better than responding right when you do sin. That's, that's pretty plain. Third, Christians are identified in Romans 6 as those who don't continue in sin, are dead to sin, and sin will have no dominion. Four, Christians, we looked at this, we proved this, Christians still do stumble and fall into sin at times. Five, when Christians stumble into sin... It's still just as true that they are not those who continue in sin. It's still just as true they are dead to sin. It's still a reality that sin will not have dominion over them. Bottom line, when Christians sin, they sin as those who are of a new nature. Six. When Christians sin, they're not some wretched man who is of the flesh, sold under sin, incapable of any good. They're still those whom Christ has set free and enabled to do good, even given His life to make them zealous of good. Seven, when Christians sin, they are always guiltless before God. There is no condemnation hanging over the Christian's head. Even when they do sin, they are justified. All right. Number eight, when Christians sin, that sin, though pardoned, is still very wicked. Sin is never less vile, never less evil, because God has forgiven it. Nine, when Christians sin, they need to remember that that sin cost the very lifeblood of Jesus Christ. He drank the wrath of God because of it. Sin is no small matter, folks. 10. When Christians sin, they have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 11. When Christians sin, they need to repent. 12. When Christians sin, the only right response is to quit sinning. 13. When Christians sin, though there is no condemnation, there are consequences. And one of the major consequences is that sin grieves God. And when God is grieved, we in turn lose the sense of Christ's manifest presence according to John 14, 21 and 23. He will actually hide His face from us. 14! This is the last one I'm going to bring up by way of reminder. When Christians sin, their only help is to look to Jesus who saves His people from their sins. He is able to save to the uttermost them that come to God through Him. So that brings us to today. We're once again going to consider the same topic. When Christians sin, part three. So let's dive in and resume our study. Now folks, this gets interesting. Because I know as I start into this, this is going to resonate with some of you. I'll tell you this, for me it is, I mean I just think about this, as I dive into this word every week, it is a joy for me to be able to ponder the depths of God's word with you all. I hope you love this word, and I hope you don't take it for granted. It's to this book we're going to go. And we're going to go here and we're going to seek the answers to some questions related to this topic to when Christians sin that are maybe not as easy to answer as some that we've already answered. Now maybe you're wondering, what could we possibly talk about when it comes to Christians and sin that we haven't already talked about? Haven't we exhausted all that needs to be said? Well, I don't think so. It seems to me there are some deep questions that need to be answered And here is the question of the hour. This is what I want you all to get your thinking on track with. When Christians sin, how are we to think about God? Now that's crucial. I mean, doesn't the Christian and sin present some problems? Now hear this carefully. Hey, is God able to stop me from sinning? When Christians sin, okay, we establish biblically, Christians do stumble into sin. And so, when Christians sin, is a real, well, it's a reality. It happens. Now, is God able to keep me from sinning? If you say, yes, God is able to stop me from sinning, then why hasn't He stopped me from sinning? Why is it still possible for Christians to sin? If we say, no, He's not able to stop a man from sinning, then let me ask you this, what hope does anyone possibly have of ever being delivered from sin? Then I ask you this, Is God stronger than sin? If you say yes, then why is sin even in the world at all? And why did God allow the devil and Adam to sin in the first place? Couldn't He have prevented it? If we say no, God couldn't have prevented it, then how can He promise to prevent sin's dominion in my life? If He can't prevent Adam's one sin, how can He guarantee me that I won't continue in sin? And then there's this. Does God hate sin? If we say yes, He does hate sin, then why allow that which He hates if He has the strength to not allow it? If we say no, He doesn't hate sin, then we've just made God out to be something we don't even want to think about. Here's another one for you. If God is sovereign and controls all things that have ever happened, and are happening, and will happen in this universe, if He is the Master, Designer, and Upholder of all things, then is God responsible for my sin? If we say no, He's in no way responsible, then let me ask you this. Did something happen that He couldn't control. If we say, yes, He is responsible for my sin, then doesn't that make God blameworthy? And at fault. I mean, have you guys ever thought about these things? Is God sovereign over sin? If not, He's not totally sovereign. Sovereign. If he is sovereign over sin and allows it, then doesn't that make him somehow responsible for sin? Because everything that happens is controlled by him. And if sin is here, then it must be by his control that it is here. And if he's responsible for it, then how can any man be held accountable and responsible for it? And how can man be punished for it? You guys ever thought about any of these things? I have. Now what you'd like me to do is answer all these in one quick, easy answer, right? You'd like these things fully explained? I'm going to tell you right up front, I am not even going to try to answer all of these, even in part today. But I'm going to seek to answer one or two or three of them as fully as the scriptures allow us to answer them. And we're going to do that just as soon as everybody is settled in. Brother, we couldn't get into them. Is it open? Okay. air conditioning on? <laughs> okay. Three right here. Stephanie, you want to come up? Okay. So back to the message. This is what we're going to talk about. These are the questions. I think they're ones about when the. I mean, hey! Here I am struggling with sin. Is God up there able to make this all stop? Is He sovereign? Does He control this? Is He the master planner? How did it ever start in the first place? I mean, not only why am I struggling with it now... Why did it even happen with Adam? Why did it happen with the devil? Could God have prevented it? Is He in control? I mean, these are questions that we really need to think about. And they're hard questions. We've been considering the Christian and his sin. Today what we want to do is step back. And we want to Look at how the Lord God fits into this whole picture. How? You know, folks, we need to know God. When I experience freedom from sin, I need to know God. And when I as a Christian fall into sin, I need to know God. I need to know what to make of Him. What is He like? What is God like? And how are we to think about Him when Christians sin? Or when they don't sin? Let me just interject a thought here. When we ask ourselves... How we are to think about God, one thing is for certain. One thought ought to come crashing in to every mind here with overwhelming certainty and conviction. And it's this human opinion counts for nothing. What you feel about the way God should be and what I feel about the way God should be counts for nothing. If, if, you know, if one of you stands up right now and says, you know, I need to make a pronouncement. And how often we hear this. We go out in these streets, we talk to people, or they come in here, we talk to people, and somebody will say, well, I just don't think God is like that. Or in my opinion, or, you know... Folks, that amounts to nothing. Nothing. Your opinions don't even enter into the equation when we're determining what's true about God. You might as well go out there and listen, listen to the wind blow or dogs bark. It means as much when we're defining who God is. And I'm going to say things very likely today about God, or in the future about God, as we consider these things, and you're going to think, I just don't think God's like that. Well, when it comes down to it, that isn't the issue. It's, do these words in this book spell out that God is like that? And if He is like that, then we better believe He's like that. And just because you have some preconception about God, you know what? Get rid of it if it doesn't line up. Yeah, you can walk out these doors and you can say, well, my God's not like that. And you know what? You can go right on your way to hell. And that's what happens to people that turn their back on this book. That's exactly the reality of the situation. So then, how are we supposed to know God? How are we supposed to think about Him? We do need to know Him. The very heart of eternal life. Is that we know him. You know, some of you, you come in here today, and if I were to ask you, what what is eternal life? Well, I live forever. That's not how Jesus Christ defined it. Eternal life is not just simply about living forever, it's that we might know the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. Is God there? Is he out there? Is he in here? Folks, then His very nature demands to be known. If God is there, nothing else matters more than He does. If God is there, He is the greatest reality. And the place we get to know Him is in this book. And what this book tells us is that when Christians sin, and when they don't sin, or whatever the case may be, One thing is for certain. God is. The voice of the Lord still cries out from that bush at Mount Sinai, I am that I am. And He is. And it doesn't matter what we say. (laughs) Even if we say He's not, He still is. This God demands our attention. So we're asking the question, what do we make of this God when Christians sin? All right? Well, here's what we make of them. Let's dive into the, you know, we've gone long enough, haven't we, without looking at a text. I've talked a lot about this book. It's time we get in here and look at this book. I had you turn to Romans six. I want you to give particular attention to verse 17. Romans 6:17. "But thanks be to God." That you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Now, I would just point out a thing or two here. Can you see? Can you all look in your Bibles right now and see? The first thing Paul says in that verse is that God is being thanked. When we thank God, there's a reason. Is there not? Thanks don't come out of a vacuum. Why do we thank God? Obviously, we thank somebody for what they have done or are doing or promised to do for us in the future. Right? And what is it this verse, in this verse that God has done? What is He being thanked for? It's clear. He has taken the Roman Christians who were once slaves of sin... He's delivered them from that slavery, and He has made them obedient from the heart. There's the heart of Christianity right there. No matter what you say you are, if there is not obedience, you're none of His. Obedience is the crowning characteristic of a child of God. Not perfect, but that is the general overriding characteristic of the life of a Christian. And it says here that those who were once slaves, God has single-handedly conquered their slavery to sin. Now, let's think about what this means. I'm asking you this question. Do Christians still sin just as much as they did when they weren't Christians? Do these Roman Christians still sin just as much as they did when they weren't Christians? If you say yes, there's nothing to thank God for. Clearly, that's not the case. These people were slaves of sin. In Ephesians 2.2, 2, people who are slaves of sin are called sons of disobedience. Are these Roman sons of disobedience now? It says this. They're just the opposite. They've become obedient from the heart. Why? Because God has done it, and He is to be thanked for doing it. Sin's ascendancy, sin's superiority, sin's frequency, sin's mastery have clearly been subdued by God and these Roman Christians. God is in control when it comes to sin. Romans 6.17 undeniably teaches that God is able to take sin and disobedience by the neck and put a death grip on it. Let me give you several more proofs of this. First one, after Romans 6.17, that's the first one. But the next one, second one maybe, glorification. By that I mean, when we go to this word, the Christian is promised that one day all sin will be gone forever. And he is going to bear the image of the man in heaven. Is that not what the Bible teaches? Now, how can God promise that? The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 12.23 talks about this very thing. He refers to the spirits of those who have already died and gone to be with Christ. And this is how He describes them. The spirits of the righteous made perfect. When one sees Jesus Christ, He becomes as Christ is. Those Christians who have departed and have seen Christ face to face, folks, He is without sin. When they say Him, they are without sin. The only way you can explain how it is possible for somebody to be completely without sin and defect is if God has such complete mastery over all sin that He has the ability to remove all of it when He wants to. And I'll tell you this, folks. Jesus Christ came into the world for this very purpose. He came to give Himself a sacrifice to God in order to purchase for us the unleashing of the almighty power of God in our behalf to ultimately eradicate all sin in us forevermore. No one sins in heaven. That's right. No one Sin's in heaven. God makes all things new. Can God conquer sin whenever and wherever He wants? You better believe it. But I'll give you another proof if you're still not sure. How about the new covenant? God Himself says this in Daniel 9.24. He says that He is going to put an end to sin and bring in everlasting righteousness. You want to know what happens in Ezekiel 36, verse 23 and following. God comes to a people who have been sinful. They have been sinful, and because they have been sinful, and I'm talking about the nation of Israel, they have dishonored the name of Christ. The name of God. The name of the Holy Trinity in glory. They have dishonored His name. And He says, listen, I'm going to vindicate the holiness. I'm going to do it. And I'm going to tell you how I'm going to do it. And I'm going to vindicate my holy, my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord. And how are they going to know He's the Lord? Because He's going to vindicate His name and He's going to flex His mighty arm and He's going to do something. And what's He going to do? He says, this is what He's going to do. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. This is not up to chance. This is not negotiable, folks. God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Does the Almighty need your help or my help to make a man obey his rules? He says, I will make you careful to obey my rules. Is He impotent to turn a man from His idols? Is He some weak God who can't cause a man to walk in His laws? Are you kidding? This is no God to play with. When God says, I will, who can resist that will? If He wills that there be light, there is light. If He wills that the oceans only go so far, they only go so far. And if He wills for a man to not sin anymore, folks, that man will not sin anymore. God is in control. Now I'm going to go to another proof. How about we talked about Romans 6.17. We talked about the fact of glorification. We talked about the new covenant. How about we just talk about the sovereignty of God? God is a God that over and over again in Scripture is laid before us as entirely in control of every single thing. Listen to this. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Psalm 115, verse 3. Do you notice any exceptions in that text? I don't. Are you going to say he does all that he pleases, except when it comes to sin? He does all that pleases him, period. Which means if it pleased him to eliminate all sin from the world right this moment, it would be done. If it pleased him to keep Christians from ever sinning again in this lifetime, he would do it. That this truth comes at us from all over the Bible Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven, on earth, in the seas, and in all the deeps. God's hands are tied by nobody, by no thing. His own pleasure dictates everything. Let these words of the prophet Daniel ring in your ears. He does according to His will among the host of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say to Him, what have you done? All too often, men make God out to be this little pathetic thing. So impotent, so dependent upon man's free will. But my friend, God's will trumps all wills. God works all things according to the counsel of His will. Ephesians one eleven says, not according to the counsel of your will, his will. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, Psalm thirty-three, eleven says. If it were not according to the counsel of God's will that sin come into this world, it would not have come. Do you understand what I just said? If it were not according to the eternal counsels of God in heaven that sin enter this world in the devil and in Adam himself, it would have never come. Folks, who can resist His purposes? Do you believe for a second that the God described in all these verses is incapable of stopping sin? If He wanted to? The Lord God scoffs at sin's power. He says, I make all things new and they become new. He can conquer it. He can lay it aside. He can lay it aside when it's here. He can prevent it before it comes. He can end it all Let's go further. I give you another thing beyond the sovereignty of God. How about just examples of God preventing sin? Go to the pages of the Bible and what do you find? You find God actually preventing sin. Where it would have happened, God kept it from happening. Does God prevent sin? Our Lord Jesus Christ seemed to think so. How did He teach us to pray? Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus wasn't mocking us here. He believed that with God, there is an ability to deliver us from evil. Not just from evil that comes at us from the outside, but from evil that wells up from inside when temptation lays hold on us. Folks, That text teaches us God can both stop the temptation and He can stop the evil that comes out of the temptation. If He couldn't, Jesus would have never instructed us to pray that way. So there's an example of the Lord assuming that it's so, but let me give you an example of God actually doing this. You guys remember that chap from the Philistines? Remember the king? Abimelech was his name. He was the king who took Sarah to be his wife, thinking she was only Abraham's sister. And here's what God distinctly said to him. Genesis 20 and verse 6. God says, Abimelech, it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. God specifically says, I kept you from sinning. Does God have the ability to keep any man at any time from sinning? You better believe He does. God prevented Balaam from cursing Israel when Balaam wanted to curse Israel. God prevented David from being guilty of shedding the innocent blood of Abigail. If God can prevent one sin in one man at a given time, then be sure of it, folks. He can prevent any sin in any man at any given time. God said through the prophet Jeremiah, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil now you think carefully about that statement god is saying that for a sinner to stop sinning in his own strength and start doing good requires the same energy level the same manifestation of power same intensity of force the same potency of exertion that it takes for a man to change his skin color or a big cat to change his spots man can't change Ethiopians or leopards. And the conclusion is that he, if he can't do that, he can't change his own heart. But now God can change skin color and spots. God made them. He certainly can change them. And if He can change them, the conclusion of that verse would be He can bring good out of those accustomed to do evil. Now let's stop right here catch our breath, really think about what all this means. What does all this mean about the way I think about God? Well, folks, all summed up, it means that God is absolutely sovereign. This means He exercises His rule and dominion over all His creation. He is able to do all His holy will At all times, in all places, and no one can ever, even for a moment, stay his hand. His purposes and his will and his counsel all stand forever. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. Now, practically, this means that when the first sin entered creation and Satan fell, God was sovereign. His will, His decree, His pleasure were all fulfilled. When Adam fell into sin, God was sovereign. If it happened, it only happened because God decreed it and it was according to His eternal counsel. When you first sinned, when I first sinned, God was sovereign. The next time I sin, God is sovereign. Make no mistake about it. Our God rules in the heavens. The Almighty says, I will accomplish all My purpose. So what do I make of it when Christians sin? What we must make of it is this. God purposely delays a full demonstration of His sin-conquering power in the life of the Christian. That is the reality of the situation. God purposely delays a full demonstration of His sin-conquering power in the life of the Christian. And the question is, why? Why would God do that? Yes, He's sovereign, but is He also cruel? Does He just like to watch us squirm around and fail? I mean, why would He do this? Well, I have a text for you to think about. The psalmist David says this about God in Psalm 119, verse 68. God is being spoken to by David. David says, God, You are good and do good. Now, why would I mention this text? Because I want you to see this. If the Lord purposely delays a full demonstration of His sin-conquering power in the life of a Christian, it isn't because He is mean. It isn't because He enjoys watching you squirm. It isn't because He doesn't love you. When Christians sin, the all-sovereign God is good still. Christian, the fact You still struggle with sin. The fact you are not yet perfect. The fact God has not fully demonstrated His sin-conquering power in your life is not an indication that He has deserted you. It's an indication that He has purposed to bring some greater good into your life through your remaining imperfections that will be all the more for His glory in the end of this whole thing. And is continuing to be more greatly for His glory. Someone once wrote to John Newton and asked him a question. He wanted to know why God allows sin to continue in the lives of His people. And Newton answered this way, We may reason based upon the goodness of God as well as upon the sovereignty of God that even remaining sin is for the purpose of Of glorifying God. But you know, he doesn't stop there. He says this for the purpose of glorifying God even further in doing us good. You say, how can that be good? It teaches you to trust Him every day, to look to Him for the help to overcome. You know what sin does too? God oftentimes lets smaller sins into your life to destroy the bigger ones. You know what? One of the greatest sins you have is pride. And you know what happens to you when God lets you fall head over heels into some sin? It humbles that pride. Because you begin to realize you're not so great as you thought you were. You're not so prone or not prone to sin and so righteous as you thought maybe you were. Now I want you to remember a few things. We're going to wrap up right here. I'm just about done. I see the end. It's in sight, folks. But I want you to remember this. Even though God purposely delays a full demonstration of His sin-conquering power in the life of the Christian, He has already and is currently displaying a massive demonstration of His sin-conquering power in your life if you are a Christian. You were slaves of sin, Romans six twenty. You were free in regards to righteousness, Romans six twenty. You were dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians two one. You were following the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians two two. You were by nature children of wrath, Ephesians two three. You were strained like sheep, First Peter two twenty five. You were not God's people, First Peter two ten. You were darkness, Ephesians five eight. You were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope, you were without God in this world. Ephesians 2.12 And you were at one time, that time folks, disobedient to God. Romans 11.30 That's how you were. But God has demonstrated such a massive working of His power. But now, 1 Peter 2.25 says, You have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now you are God's people. 1 Peter 2.10 now you are the light in the Lord. Ephesians five eight. Now in Christ Jesus you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Ephesians 2.12 Romans 6.22 But now you have been set free from sin. Christians, don't you ever say that because God hasn't fully manifested His power when it comes to sin in your life that He hasn't demonstrated any power at all. And what you need to remember and what I need to remember is not so much that God is sovereign in the delay of my perfection, but we need to remember that He is sovereign as He currently brings about the destruction of my remaining sin. We don't hang our heads like some defeated dogs moping and moaning around to ourselves because God is sovereign and has decided to withhold glorification from us right now, rather we rejoice, we run, we fight, we resist sin. Just because God is sovereign. Because He is. I have the surest certainty that I am moving from one degree of glory to another into the likeness of Christ. Remember, it is the sovereign God that is said that we Christians are predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. God doesn't mean for us to be stagnant. He means for us to look to His sovereignty. He means for us to run with all fervency and passion and intensity and earnestness trusting Jesus Christ. And that through Him and in Him, the sovereign power of God has been unleashed against my sin. Listen, I want to tell you this. The sovereignty of God is gospel for those of you that sit here right now and know that you are in bondage to sin and can't get out. If you ever take the sovereignty of God and you say, well, I am the way He decreed and if He decreed me to be this way, this is the way I need to be and I'm just going to run in my sin. Paul himself dealt with that. He said, if you make that out to be a license for sin... If you do that, your damnation, your condemnation is just. If you take the grace of God, you take the power of God, you take the decrees of God, and you ever end up justifying your sin, your damnation will be just in the end. God's sovereignty is not being preached here to you this morning to give you warrant for sin. It's giving you warrant for victory. And I'm telling you what, God's sovereignty is a huge blessing. It is the best, most phenomenal message that you can hear on the face of this earth, folks, if for once you realize that Jesus Christ came to this earth, and if you will look to Him and trust in what He did up on that cross, the moment you put your faith in Him, it begins to unleash such a massive demonstration of the power of God This sovereign God will come upon your life and He will so radically manipulate and transform you into something you never thought possible. Into such a creature that you are made new. Old things are passed away. You are born again. This is the hope of mankind. We take God's sovereignty and we look to Him and don't find fault with Him. We find hope in Him. That is where my hope is. And I'll tell you what, there is no way that God has given anywhere to tap into the power to break the power of sin in your life. To tap into that dominating influence of divinity that sweeps into the life and overcomes Your lying tongue, your adulterous life, your drunken lifestyle, that addiction to crack or to money, your lust for stuff, there is no way to tap into that power except one way. If I could tell you right now there were five different ways to get it, I'd tell you. But there's only one way. You tap into that power only one way, and it is through Jesus Christ. He is the way, He is the truth, and He is the life. And unless you tap into that power, there will be no life. Because you must have your sins dealt with. It is only through Him you find forgiveness, and it is only when you've been forgiven of your sins that God dispatches His power to conquer the sin. You cannot conquer sin in your life until your life is first one that has been forgiven for all that wretchedness in there. And there is only one who forgives. There is only one path to that forgiveness. There is only one way. And if you will not come by that one way, there is no other. You can take your Islam and go to hell with it. You can take your Hinduism and do the same. You can take your Catholicism and go to the grave, folks, and you will be where the popes of old are who trusted in their own righteousness and in their own power and in their own strength. You'll go where Muhammad is. You'll go where Pope John Paul II is. You'll go to the pit. It is only those not trusting their own selves who look to Christ and call upon Him that will find this great sovereign triumph of the Lord God Almighty that will bury the sinner in grace. Lift them up out of that pit. And you will be dead to sin. And you will not continue in it. And you will be free from it. And it will not have dominion over you. And when you stumble, you're falling from a higher plane. And though you stumble, and though you fall seven times, God's almighty, sovereign grace and power lifts you back up again. That is the reality of the Scripture. Can God prevent it? You better believe it and that's your hope. And that's why you go to Him. And if He couldn't, there's no reason to look to Him. That's the only answer. There is no other. May God honor that message for Christ's sake. Amen. You're dismissed.